the provincial government has also allowed for the reopening on a day basis, day use basis, of many of our provincial parks. Prime Minister Trudeau announcing just a couple of days ago that effective uh, June 1st, the many, not all, but many of the national parks will reopen to visitors again initially on a day use only basis. Still, uh, promises of camping trips uh, in BC to parks and familiar family spots are on uh, uh, probably by July and phase three. So we were now, we've had a chance though with the closures of all parks in this country to, uh, well, have a chance to A, uh, really have a hankering to get back out to the great outdoors, but also a chance to sort of rethink the way parks are managed. There's a very interesting article brought to our attention the other day. Here's the headline. Coronavirus closures could lead to a radical revolution in conservation. One of the authors of the piece is Jim Stinson. Dr. Stinson is with uh, York University and he is in the uh, Institute of Global Health Research in the Faculty of Education at York University. He's on the line from Toronto this morning. Dr. Stinson, Jim, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. And we were talking about this uh, at dinner the other night, Jim, because, of course, parks have been closed uh, nationwide for many weeks. Uh, And now with the reopening here in B.C. this weekend of some provincial parks, uh, the animals have had pretty much free reign over there, essentially their turf in the first place. But no no visitors, no uh, not many interruptions uh, so far this season. I suspect, Jim, when, when people start returning to the parks as early as today, uh, there could be more than a few surprised encounters between uh, creatures, bears most likely, and humans who really haven't had much to see with each other for many weeks. Yeah, I think um, the animals that have been probably having a, a little bit of a party in the absence of, of all the visitors that they normally have to deal with are, are going to be... Uh, maybe unpleasantly surprised by uh, the return of people. Well, that's interesting. You, sure. you would use the phrase having a party because your, your co-author, who's at Boise State University in Idaho, uh, talked to the folks at Yosemite in California, and one of the park rangers down there actually told her, yeah, I think the creatures are having a party. And, and, and you, could, you, you can see how, how that could be interpreted that way. Talk to us a little bit, though, Dr. Stinson, this morning about the, uh, the benefits that this has provided us, this breathing space albeit forced nonetheless it's it's planet-wide um we've we've all had to basically shelter in place and all of our parks have been wide open for a significant period of time yeah i think um well i think um i think one of the trends that we've seen uh within you know park management um within canada and internationally over the last a decade or so has been a pretty significant increases in visitation um, to parks, and obviously that visitation uh, does have environmental impacts. Um, so I think you know one of the benefits, um, sort of side effects that's been a benefit, has been sort of a chance to reduce some of that impact and uh, to to actually see what happens um, when visitation decreases. You t- um, so. You know, it's it's obviously been a short period of time. It's still early, but there have been some um, some positive reports of, of animal populations, you know, doing fairly well in the absence of of a lot of uh, of visitation. 
Yeah, and and uh, and of course, uh, fewer deaths from selfies being taken in in really dangerous places, and you see that every year tragically. Uh, so that's, I suppose, a benefit as well, Jim. But you 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 and your your uh, co-author talk about something called a planetary health framework. You're looking at people like the Parks Canada's of all the nations in the world, sort of coming together with a global strategy. Parks Canada, we're the second largest country on earth. We've got a lot of territory to cover and look after in the first place, but you're suggesting that our people uh, get together with other park managers from around the world and organize a, a more cohesive global strategy. Is there nothing in place at this time at all? Yes, yeah, so, so there is. I mean, uh, one of the really, I think, important trends over the last sort of 10 to 20 years uh, has been a movement called Healthy Parks, Healthy People. Okay. And that's placed uh, a growing awareness on the human health benefits of uh, spending time in nature and, you know, specifically in parks and protected areas. Um, so that's been, I think, a really positive development. Um, but again, one of the sort of negative side effects of that has been that it's uh, drawn a lot more people out into parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that has been has been a trend. I think one of the one of the things that's kind of been less clear about healthy parks, healthy people has been, you know, there's been a lot of research on the health, the human health benefits of increased visitation and spending more time in nature. Uh, but it hasn't been as clear um, what the actual environmental benefits of, of getting more people out into parks is. And there's actually a lot of, you know, negative environmental uh, consequences to that. So one of the things that we are just trying to, to increase some discussion about is um, trying to move towards uh, a more of a balanced approach in balancing human health benefits and environmental protection um, in a more kind of cohesive way. And yeah, we had proposed a framework of, of planetary health. Yeah, your premier, um, Mr. Ford, way of doing that. and our premier, Mr. Horgan, have both talked to the people of Ontario and B.C. respectively, Jim, about about getting out. We we get it. We know that you want to get out into nature, and we know that you want to go back to the parks and take your family out camping. And so the the, the, the leaders at the provincial level are keenly aware of, of the benefits and the sort of pent-up desire to, and cabin fever that they have in, in their populations. But at the same time as, as encouraging us to uh, be responsible and, and, and carry on with the distancing protocols, uh, they are encouraging us to get out. So hand in glove with that, one would hope that there would be uh, um, some kind of discussion about management because as, as you recognize and we all know, there are enormous benefits to being outdoors and interacting with nature and all of that sort of thing. But the negative consequences of too many of us in too, in, in too concentrated a crowd in any one area, let alone social distancing, it's just too much. So uh, how do we how do we manage that? That's the, the the sixty-five million dollar question here this morning, Jim. How do you create the balance whereby the population gets to appreciate and enjoy the great outdoors and not, you know, sort of take out everything out there in the process? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple. Well, there are many. Um, Strategies, I think, to do that. Um, one potential strategy might be um, recognizing that there might be a need to shift visitation from uh, parks and protected areas that are um, 
impacted the most mm-hmm. through visitation. You know, there are certain parks that are very heavily visited. You bet. Uh, so there might be a need to shift visitation toward less visited parks. Um, another, I think, important strategy might actually be um, increasing the amount of green space uh, available, both in you know national and provincial parks, but also in urban areas as well, um, in order to simply you know make natural spaces more um, access- accessible than they currently are. Okay, and uh, you think there's an appetite for that? I, I, again, as, uh, as uh, this, this, is, this whole pandemic is a game changer, and it, it's given all of us, Dr. Stinson, a chance to sit down and think about a lot of different things that perhaps we wouldn't have spent much time on otherwise. Do you think there might be some sympathy for that balance, a little more of a balance? Well, I, think, I think after um, you know, the, the lockdowns and the stay-at-home uh, orders that people have been living through for the past uh, month or, or a couple of months, I think there's a, a growing recognition of the importance of, of getting outside and, and spending time in, in nature. Um, so yeah, I think there could be there could be um, some openness to that. Um, the, the one thing that I think that could be a, a significant issue, you know, for parks moving forward is also just the disruption of the tourism industry in general. Yes. You know, we know that tourism uh, does play a significant role in funding the management of parks. Um, and with the international tourism industry basically closed and shut down at the moment, you know, that's going to be something that's also going to need a significant um, rethink uh, moving forward, um, particularly if that, you know, if, if that cl- closure or slowdown of tourism uh, stays in place for the longer term. Yeah, good point to make, too. This uh, article, by the way, by our, our guest, Dr. Stinson, and his colleague, uh, Elizabeth Lindstrom from Boise State, is available, and it's a good read. It's at theconversation.com. The headline is, Coronavirus Closures Could Lead to a Radical Revolution in Conservation. Dr. Jim Stinson, thanks for bringing us t- to the attention of this article, and we'll talk again as uh, we get a little more experience with more open parks. We'll get together later in the summer and see how things are going are you good for that i'm great yeah that'd be awesome thank Excellent. you so much well thank you jim and we'll, we'll talk again for sure restaurants around vancouver will see a new and expedited flexible process for establishing their own outdoor patios wednesday evening just uh, the other night in a unanimous vote vancouver city council approved a motion by councillor sarah kirby young that called for the city to urgently develop a new framework for patios to expand the seating capacity of some restaurants Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young joins us. Good morning. Thanks for being with us today. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, Sarah. Tell us a little bit more about this motion, and were you surprised by the fact that everyone was on board in a unanimous kind of way? Uh, I am really excited that it was unanimous, and uh, I think that we heard loud and clear with such a huge amount of feedback from the restaurant community and from the public that this was something they wanted, so um, I I think it was clear to council that uh, it just made sense to move forward. The city does not have one of the best reputations on the planet for expediting matters of any uh, uh, department very quickly. And of course, with the <laughs> with with the realities of, of this whole pandemic and the closures of the hospitality industry and so many restaurants literally on the bubble, Sarah, I suppose anything that can be done to try and, and salvage something for them is, is, is a good thing. If you don't have a patio already and you're 
looking to reopen your restaurant, you know that you're only going to have a maximum capacity of half of what you used to have. Can you apply to have a patio added to outside your existing structure? And and if uh, what's what necessary for approval for that? So exactly, and we we know in talking to a lot of the restaurants that this will make the difference between them be able to being able to survive and and actually whether they reopen or not. And some of the operators I've spoken to, because like you said, the numbers don't work. If you have to physically distance people in the same amount of space, and you have the high rent and overhead costs, it just economically they can't they can't they can't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to put uh, patrons outside and have outdoor dining um, can be the difference to survival and it's healthy for people. So this is about being really simple um, and not having a long extended process. In the past, people had to submit a, a drawing or, uh, you know, submit their application, wait often weeks and took months and they didn't hear back. So this is about being really, really quick and responsive um, and a lot simpler in what we require. So if it, you can have something as simple as two bistro tables outside with a couple of chairs because you're a small little place. Sure. Um, and keep it simple. It might be that you say, you know what, I'd like to use the parking space in front of my restaurant and do a, a little parklet outside. And we have a quick and simple sort of pre-approved design um, so that it really expedites and moves it forward. But you're right. This is causing the city to learn to be a lot more nimble and a lot more responsive. Interesting. Now, in the case of some, some, in some cases, it's simply not logistically possible to have the, even a couple of bistro chairs and a table outside your place. It's just it doesn't work. But you and a couple of other places in on your street have spotted a, a little spot down there. Maybe you could share a patio space. Is that uh, up for consideration? It's very popular in the other parts of the world where you have a, a shared patio accommodation served by a number of restaurants is that under consideration for vancouver great question and um, part of the motion called for looking at uh, the ability for sort of common style outdoor dining uh, so you think of sort of a, a great giant outdoor dining room it's uh, happening in oakland um, we see european cities that are turning their entire outdoors into sort of a large outdoor cafe yes um, and so you know we're not having festivals this summer so on west Forth, for example could you on the weekends, you know, shut down a couple of blocks to street traffic and there's tables and chairs and people can grab what they want and enjoy and go eat outside. So um, I think that we're trying to provide as multiple options, as many as we can. And the announcement from the province this week about more flexibility with liquor regulations mm-hmm. is really, really helpful. And I think was in response to a lot of the good work done by restaurants calling for this um, and the support that, you know, councils like Vancouver are showing um, to support our business community. For the benefit of those who may not be completely up to speed with regards to the government, the provincial government's uh, changes to liquor regulations, how, how, how important are those changes, Sarah? Identify them if you can, please, uh, particularly as they affect those restaurants itching to reopen and very, very anxious that they're going to make it or not. Well, fundamentally important. So if the city of Vancouver, if we didn't have the province you know, in parallel, um, coming together with us, uh, let's say the city of Vancouver said to a restaurant, okay, you can have your patio space outside and extend that, but their liquor license currently didn't allow that. Sure, and they right. would be serving patrons outside with food, but not necessarily be able to have a beverage at the same time. Right. Um, so that that's sort of the very practical reason of how that works. And they also may not have been the fastest, <laughs> like the city of Vancouver, like you said, in flexible 
flexibility and speed. Um, and so, you know, the Attorney General, David Eby, has made that commitment um, to expedite those and really simplify in the same way. So that, that's sort of how that, I think, will work and, and make this come together. So it is something that really n- need you need intergovernmental cooperation, Sarah, because of that, the liquor license, uh, there is a provincial government component to the, to the holding of that license. So you really do need cooperation from Victoria, and clearly you're getting it on this matter. Absolutely. And I was delighted that we got that. That literally came through on the same day that uh, Council passed this patio motion. So the timing could not have been better. You talked earlier about uh, on a weekend scenario, you use West 4th as a great example. No Cozzolano Festival this summer, Sarah. But, you know, uh, on the weekends, you talked about maybe a, 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 a small restaurant uh, looking to have a lane closure. That lane it would be parking at any other time, but maybe we could put a, a, a small patio area out in that lane on a on a temporary basis is that is that a doable thing can can you uh, issue a license for saturdays and sundays only for specific patio use well i think i'm looking at both i think i'm looking at the opportunities to sort of you know the key is being is the flexibility like you said so it could be um the couple of blocks on west fourth like i mentioned on a weekend and and that sort of is temporal um, but I'm also looking at the opportunity for more public plaza use and space where we sort of on the longer term have chairs, chairs and tables set up. So think of the North uh, Plaza of the Vancouver Art Gallery right now. Sure. It was all redone, beautiful space. Mm-hmm. There isn't much public seating there. So, you know, if we set up some tables and chairs and leverage a lot of those spaces around the city so that there's just more places on a regular basis for people to sit down. And Sarah, I've got a quote attributed to you from the paper the other day. Quote, people don't go into hospitality to make a lot of money. They go into it because it's a passion. It's not an easy existence, even in the best of times. And now with COVID-19, we have restaurants desperately trying to survive on takeout. And if they can't do that, they've had to close. A, is that a pretty accurate quote? That's a very accurate quote. I said that in council when I was closing, making closing remarks on my motion. So, okay. Yeah, that so, is, that's uh, wh- verbatim. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the stories that you've heard. And I, I have a son who is in the hospitality industry and a daughter-in-law in the hospitality industry. Neither of them are working these days, Sarah, and uh, the, the pretty long faces and, and some of their friends as well. Tell us some of the stories you're hearing about those on-the-bubble operations. Well, I talked to a fellow who owns four or five uh, restaurants here in Vancouver, um, ones that you may know. So things like Bells and Whistles Pub on Fraser Street, Wildebeest um, down near Crosstown. And he said to me uh, in talking about this motion that he will be opening four of his five restaurants, but not the fifth one, Wildebeest, because he cannot do outdoor dining at that location. Uh Uh-huh. Just physically, it doesn't make sense. So that made the difference for him being able to open that and think of the people that he employs. So those workers that uh, would be hoping to go back there won't be able to. So we are going to have less restaurants and we're going to hope potentially have less customers unless we make people feel really comfortable in outdoor dining and safe. We've uh, had a lot of uh, word from WorkSafe BC this week, uh, more directives from them yesterday, as a matter of fact, with respect to the way the physical uh, outline has to look. You have to have a plan, you have to uh, abide by social and physical distancing regulations and so on, which means approximately to the typical Vancouver restaurant, about half capacity. Correct, Sarah? 
Yeah, it can, absolutely. And they're also limiting to tables of six, so they'll be spreading their tables out with physical distancing. And um, I think, too, it's it's the it's the comfort level of how quickly people get out and feel comfortable being in those spaces again. Sure, that's the other part of the equation, isn't it? We're not sure how many. I suspect there's a pretty strong appetite for it, but we're not 100% <laughs> sure. But on if, you know, just flipping that coin kind of in the direction of, of 12th and Canby, Sarah, if these restaurants, and you mentioned there's a, a chain of five, one of which is not going to make it, and the others uh, kind of maybe. Uh, if if this is the situation across the board in the restaurant industry in Vancouver, uh, talk to us a little bit about the impact of that on City Hall, because if they're not making very much money, and some of them may, aren't making any, neither is the City Tax Department, is it? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head, Sterling, and, and I've said that all the way through, and it's 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 been really disheartening to me to have the mayor come out and speak about the city finances and worry about the health of the city and not speak about being concerned about the health of our businesses and our residents who can't pay the rent or their mortgage or, the, you know, the leases on, the, on their places of business, because if they're not healthy, the city of Vancouver isn't. And, in my view, the patio regulations are one of the first tangible things that we have done as a council during the pandemic to respond to our business community and get people through it. So um, it's absolutely fundamental because if they don't have revenue coming in, they can't pay their taxes. And in Vancouver, we know our spaces are really expensive. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other things that City Council kicked around this week, Sarah. And one of them was uh, a request by one of your colleagues on Council for more slow lanes around certain sections of downtown Vancouver. Using Stanley Park is a very good example. Uh, we closed Stanley Park to traffic. The causeway, of course, is open, but we closed Stanley Park mostly to, to vehicular traffic in order to accommodate. Uh, we want people walking on the seawall and people cycling on the streets. There was too many encounters of a negative variety before that. So it's working. And I mean, it's frustrating for those who want to take their guests, not many, these days, but a drive through the park is always terrific, but it is working. Is that an example that could be applied in other parts of the city? And if so, where? That is an, absolutely an example. And this is about reallocating road space and you think of key busy areas. So uh, you've referenced the one near Stanley Park, and this is a motion from my fellow councillor Lisa Dominato, and I am wholeheartedly supportive of it. It's really about rethinking how we use our public space for public benefit and public health. Another example would be down in Kitsilano. That's a really really busy area down there at Kitts Beach. And so if you think along Cornwall there and onto Kitts Point, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's, that's definitely a, a bottleneck point. So the idea then would be to have uh, uh, the the streets. Uh, what what would be the remedy? Uh, would you just close some of the streets uh, like along Cornwall around Kitts Beach and the pool area? Yeah, I think what this is the motion is calling for is looking at temporary closures um, as a pandemic response and seeing how the community responds to them. And it's giving people that room to move, right? And, and so the city has called it room to move, room to queue, and room to load. So you've seen some spaces outside grocery stores like Whole Foods on West 4th or um, Fruticana on Fraser Street mm-hmm. um, in sort of busy areas. So it's, it's really identifying where some of those bottleneck points are, where people need to be. So grocery stores being an important one, but also parks and beaches, because that's one of the things that people can do right now that's open 
um, and get outside and get some fresh air and be healthy. So um, there'll be a number of measures that are temporary, and I think that there might be some opportunities long-term, which I'm excited about in terms of some positive legacies for devoting more space to people. Yeah, now they're talking about, you referenced Kitts Beach and Kitts Point a couple of times. That was the example they used on uh, global TV coverage of this story the other night, and that was the matter of being able to drink in public places, and there's a turf war. Uh, the park board says, no, wait a second, that's not a city council decision. Ultimately, that's ours. We don't even have our concession stand. We can't even serve mixer, let alone anything else on the beaches yet. But what about, in principle, the idea of an adult beverage on a public beach? Well, I've got a lot of history with this one because I did serve on the Vancouver Park Board from 2014 to 18 last time, and I actually started this ball rolling um, because I called for a review of our concession strategy. Um, and part of that, we went out to Vancouverites and did a survey, talked to 7,000 people, and one of the things that came back was that people said they'd like to be able to have maybe a local BC brew or, or a glass of wine near the beach. And so the Park Board decided to do a survey around, or sorry, not a survey, but a trial, around piloting that at some of its concessions, um, and that work was underway. Um, uh, and still is. I'm not sure why it was taking so long. I did consult at the time with the Vancouver PD and ask for their input. Sure. Um, and I think, and I think that's really, really important in terms of public safety. Um, and they were supportive of a limited trial at that point, but it seems to have stalled. Um, and so I do think that there is an opportunity to look at moving forward in a reasonable way. I think that the motion that you're talking about from Councillor Boyle. Um, calling for it is that it's it's not a council jurisdiction. It is a decision of the Vancouver Park Board, right. and I think it's hers is a straight out call for it for people to be able to drink everywhere across the city in parks and beaches. And I think a lot of people do it responsibly. But I know from the BPD that there are a lot of issues and there are fights that break out in the summer and sure. increases in numbers of, of reported crime incidents that come back. Um, and I don't believe that that discussion or conversation has happened in consultation with the BPD. And I think we know that things can not go well when we don't talk to our partners. And we've heard that this week well, in we- terms of the relations between City Hall and the police department. So um, I, I think that, you know, City Hall's got a lot to deal with right now. And I think we should let the park board do their job. And I think we should do ours because we've got an awful lot of businesses that we need to help survive and recover right now. Yeah, there are a lot of other priorities, uh, certainly. But it's, it's certainly uh, something that is done in many, many other places of the world with uh, relative calm and peace. And you can't let a few bozos spoil it for everybody. Sarah Kirby Young, thank you for this. It's uh, great to have you on the program. I don't think we've done this together before. And we must no. again sometime soon. Have a great day. And Enjoy the rest of your long weekend, and thanks for doing this. You too, Sterling. Oh, it's a pleasure. The federal government has announced more than half a billion dollars to support the fishing industry during the COVID-19 pandemic, representing the largest expenditure on the industry since the cod moratorium bailout in Atlantic Canada many years ago. Thursday, the Prime Minister announced $469 million in direct support to be allocated through two programs specifically aimed at fish harvesters who are facing mountain mounting rather uncertainty. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dave Chevelle, who is the CEO of Organic Ocean. Dave, good morning. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Starling. Good morning. It's good to have you with us, sir. Tell us, uh, take a moment, Dave, if you would, please, and tell us who Organic Ocean is. Uh, Organic Ocean is a uh, seafood supplier that was uh, established by commercial fishermen a little over a decade ago um, in response to what we deemed was a dysfunctional supply chain, and uh, we've thrived, and we now supply seafood to uh, restaurants across Canada and the United States and Southeast Asia. And where's headquarters, Dane? 
Uh, Steveton, B.C., the oh. largest fishing port on the West Coast. Ah, okay. Now, this uh, $469 million package was part of a, a greater package because, uh, the, as I did say, it was over half a billion dollars. It was an announcement of $67 million, uh, in April. Uh, how does this money, uh, in terms of, it sounds like a monstrous amount of money, Dane, but how much, uh, how will this trickle down to the wharf at Steveston, for example, to the people in the industry who are struggling? Well, you're not the first to ask the question, and in all of us within industry are taking a look at the uh, uh, funding packages to try to figure out how they work. And you know, I guess I'd like to say the devil is in the detail. Um, at, at this point, it appears as though uh, we uh, fishermen are stand to uh, get subsidized based upon how much less we've earned this year than we've earned last year. And in the case of uh, fisheries like the salmon fisheries, we earned uh, very little last year. So um, I don't want to look a gift horse in, in the mouth, but I'm not sure what the impact is going to be on, on some of the have-not fisheries. It, it stands to benefit some of the more successful fisheries like uh, ground fish and uh, prawn fisheries and that type of thing. So uh, jury's out. Yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, this is the fishery, and it's from Ottawa, so I referenced the cod moratorium, the biggest bailout that Ottawa has sent to the industry, period, since those days. And that, my gosh, that's back to the Mulrooney area, Dane. But um, uh, we are looking at $469 million to both coasts fisheries, and the Atlantic fishery, the lobster fishery, uh, is alone uh, a multi-billion dollar industry. So, again, the reason I asked about is it enough uh, and, of course, you don't know yet, uh, is because that's, an, that's a huge industry on both coasts. To uh, And, and uh, again, it sounds like a significant amount of dough, Dane, but I don't know if it is. Yeah, and, and, and nor do I, but one of the things that it underscores is the importance of uh, primary food production. And uh, I think that farmers and fishermen have been an overlooked segment of society for a long time now. And, and now that we have a health crisis, the last thing we want to see is a food shortage to compound that. So uh, for the first time in a very long time, I think fishermen and farmers are uh, maybe seeing their day in the sun. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, the uh, the impact, as you, you described Organic Ocean, your company, as being able to, being in a position to provide wonderful West Coast fresh seafood products to the nation. Uh, how... Are, how are how are your team how is your team doing dane uh, a, a lot of people in serious distress well as as you can well imagine or maybe maybe not um two thirds or more of the seafood that we produce uh, is sold through uh, restaurants and when that uh, business shut down in mid march so did our supply chain sure. so um, much of industry has pivoted now and uh, moved to providing direct online uh, sales to uh, for home delivery, and that's what our business has done. And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to report that uh, um, it's going very well. It's flourishing, and the same type of seafood that we would sell to a Michelin-starred restaurant in uh, Singapore, we're making available to communities in the Lower Mainland, Squamish, and most recently Toronto. And how do you get the word out? Uh, how how it be, again because of uh, the uh, the nature of the product? Are, are you buying TV ads, or or I, or I don't hear organic ocean spots on CKNW yet, Dane? Nudge nudge. How, how, do you, how, how are you getting the word out? Well, this is a good opportunity. 
see, yeah. organicocean.com. Okay. But, uh, we, we have garnered a, a ton of publicity, and the reason that we have is that we've made this a very socially responsible uh, endeavor. One of the first things we determined to do is uh, make highly nutritious seafood available, not just to uh, people that could afford to buy it, but more importantly, to people that couldn't. And uh, so far, we've donated enough seafood to uh, feed 10,000 people uh, or make 10,000 meals available to the downtown east side. And the, the, both the public and the media like that story, and that uh, has spread our reputation like a virus, pardon the pun. Yeah, exactly. But in terms of the distribution network, and, and I think people, uh, consumers, Dane, are sort of, as you mentioned, fishermen and farmers are, are finally having their day in the sun in terms of their value to the to the economy, to the nation, to the, the food chain. Uh, people, again, with a little more time perhaps than usual on their hands, have an opportunity to, to look at the big picture, take a step back and see how things work, how those all the cogs in the wheel make it go around and that sort of thing. So we've seen, um, regrettably, scenes of farmers destroying some products and that sort of thing. Has it come to that in the fishery or have you been able to sell most of what you catch? No, uh, we, we have put uh, fishermen on trip limits and, and said, you know, only catch so much because we can only put so much through the supply chain. But I think it's changing. Um, I think the supply chain is uh, is flowing more. Uh, I think that uh, people are getting more comfortable with buying seafood rather than uh, just looking to uh, um, ordering it in a restaurant. We've got all our chefs contributing recipes and chef tips that uh, are promoting um, cook-at-home seafood to make it uh, easy and user-friendly. And I think for the first time, people are really glomming on to the idea that uh, it's pretty simple and it's pretty awesome uh, uh, source of food. As restaurants reopen, and of course, Phase 2, you're a BC guy, Phase 2 kicks in officially on Tuesday. Uh, with uh, We were just talking to a Vancouver councillor, Sarah Kirby Young, about the, the constrictions that will be placed on uh, the food into the food service industry with basically half a house uh, on, on, a, on a good day if you're full. You're, you're still only at half capacity. Nonetheless, though, Dane, that represents a revival in demand from the point of view uh, of your end of the deal right we hope i mean uh my crystal ball is no better than yours and i just don't know uh how it's going to function uh we're we, we try to be optimistic because we really feel for our customers uh, i don't think anybody has suffered more over the course of the last two months than uh restaurateurs sure and uh um we we hope that they can be viable but in talking to them they don't know and and uh you know i heard yesterday the chef's table society was meeting trying to figure out you know if they were going to be able to do this how they were going to be able to do this and whether or not it was going to work so it's kind of one of these time will tell situations now, are you, because you have a customer base that is well beyond British Columbia, uh, are, you, are you noticing, I guess it's still pretty early, Ontario, this is just May 2-4 weekend, Dane, so things are just starting to open up. And I'm just wondering, though, if you've had any uh, optimistic uh, increases in orders from other parts of the country, from clients elsewhere in Canada. Interesting question, uh, Sterling, and, and what I will tell you is that we're starting to get orders and have done for a little while now from markets like Hong Kong and Singapore. Oh, okay. And, and they're, they're obviously ahead of us in the curve, so um, if that's the case, you know, that, that, that's a glimmer of hope that, uh, you know, maybe we're lagging them by a month or so, and, and that's certainly what uh, uh, we're looking forward to. 
Interesting. But of course, at this point, any business, regardless of, of the point on the planet from which it may emanate, is really welcome business, right? Well, it's absolutely. I mean, uh, we need it and we want it. But I think, as importantly, if you start to see these economies and, and these, this purchasing rebound, it also gives you some hope that uh, uh, we may be addressing the uh, uh, coronavirus and the spread of it. So it's, it's all a good story. Organic Ocean was the first seafood supplier in the world to adopt DNA authentication to provide customers the assurance they were getting what they paid for. This is a description of Dane Chevelle's company, friends, on the website he's promoting shamelessly on the radio this morning, (laughs) OrganicOcean.com. It's a great site, Dane, and uh, I highly recommend it to our, our listeners this morning. And you can find a way to order seafood right there now, can't you? Absolutely. And uh, Sterling, we've got to get you some of the seafood so that you can uh, promote it unshamelessly. I think when you try it yourself, you'll get it. It's, it's really uh, extraordinary. It's, it's as good as seafood as is sold throughout the world, and that's why it ends up in Michelin-starred restaurants. It's something that uh, British Columbians and Canadians uh, have uh, great reason to be proud of. Well, there'll be no arm twisting required on your part there, Dane. I'm, I'm a big fan and, and, and would absolutely love some. So thanks very much for doing this. We hope the bailout is of some assistance to your team, uh, and we wish you considerable success in getting things back on track as, as we start, hopefully, going out to enjoy some of that delicious seafood at a local eatery. Thanks for doing this this morning. You're very kind, Sterling. Thank you. It was a, it was a pleasure. Dane Chevelle is the CEO of Organic Ocean. Check him out, organicocean.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.